Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. And today I'm thrilled to welcome Saskia Vieringa, Annie Pullman, and Jess Melvin to the show. The three have edited a wonderful new collection of essays titled The International People's Tribunal for 1965 and the Indonesian Genocide. I've talked often in previous interviews uh, with guests about about how they address the intersection of scholarship and activism. It's it's an intersection that that lies at the heart of many people's commitment to the study of mass atrocity violence. And this book stands somewhere right at the middle of that intersection. It's on the one hand, an extensive survey of our understanding of the mass violence that occurred in Indonesia starting in 1965. Uh, but it also represents the commitment of its authors, uh, uh, and, and there are 12 or 13 or 14 of them, the commitment to facilitate public acknowledgement and understanding of these killings and, and to reckon with the need for accountability. Uh, it, it's an excellent book, um, and I'm really thrilled to talk to the editors. So, Saskia, Annie, Jess, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you for having us. Yes. Very happy to be here. So we'll have a chance to talk, talk a little, in a little bit about how I characterized the book, and I'll be curious to see if you think I characterized it uh, well. Uh, but to start, I, I always ask uh, authors and editors to, to introduce themselves. And so I know Annie and Jess have been on the show, so we'll ask them in just a second to uh, keep us up to date with what they've been up to. Saskia, you've not been on the show. Thank you for joining us. Maybe you can say a few words of introduction. Yes, well, uh, thank you, Kelling, for hosting the show, of course. <coughs> sorry. And, uh, <coughs> sorry. And inviting me to be part of it. Um, I'm very happy to have edited uh, this book together with uh, Annie and, and Jess. We have been uh, at the core of the research team of the IPT 65, the International People's Tribunal 65, dealing with the mass crimes against humanity. We organized uh, in November 2015 this tribunal. Um, and we in total had uh, about 40 researchers working with us to prepare the indictment. Uh, and the three of us were, as I said, uh, the core team uh, of that endeavor. Uh, this was important because um, there have been some publications, but actually not that many if you compare it to the Holocaust on these mass crimes against humanity in Indonesia. Um, but very few uh, legal texts. There had been one, um, um, one report of the Na- National Commission of Human Rights, but that could not be um, uh, well taken further because the public prosecutor in Indonesia did not want to continue the work of it. So our tribunal was very timely. It was the only one possible uh, at this moment in time to at least bring some legal clarification to what happened uh, in Indonesia. I myself am an anthropologist. Uh, I started out uh, doing labor studies, women's labor studies, gender studies, and then moved on to women's movements. And um, in in the beginning of the 80s, I was doing a PhD on the women's movement in Indonesia and then came across uh, survivors of this of these massacres, uh, who asked me to write the history of the communist women's movement in Indonesia. I did, 
Uh, I wrote a book, Sexual Politics in Indonesia, about that, in which their story is included. And that was the first time that uh, to the outside world, um, the history of that organization, which was the third largest in the world uh, in the middle of the 60s, uh, was told. Um, this had uh, great repercussions uh, for me, right, I must say. Uh, I've never been able to... Uh, kind of let go of this uh, mass crimes against humanity in Indonesia anymore. I continue working on it, um, but I moved on from that to sexual politics as well, because mm. sexual politics are at the heart of how the movement was destroyed. Um, and so I've been working and publishing and uh, writing books, uh, including a novel. It's called mm. Lubang Buaya, The Crocodile Hole. Uh, but still there was hardly any attention, neither within the country nor internationally. And so that's why uh, uh, we set up this uh, the foundation. I chair the foundation on the IPT. Um, and the general coordinator of ours is Nushakpani Katyasunkana, uh, who is a major, uh, well-known uh, human and women's rights activist and lawyer in Indonesia. Uh, and we organized the tribunal. We then felt how next, what next to do, because it was clear that the Indonesian government was not going to prosecute and was not going to follow up on the recommendations made by our um, highly competent panel of judges. And so we felt we must kind of uh, really capture that process and the uh, contributions of, uh, of many of our researchers. And so that's why we uh, edited uh, this book. Mm -hmm. The importance of it is that uh, the, these mass crimes, we call it a genocide, will not be forgotten. It, it must continue. And uh, we are part of this whole journey towards uh, the end of impunity. At some stage, impunity will end. At some stage, Indonesia will come to terms, will have to come to terms with this history. It may still take uh, a long time, as has happened uh, with the Armenian genocide, uh, but I think our contribution is uh, substantial in this uh, process. Thank you. That's a wonderful introduction. We'll come uh, back and tease out some of the uh, uh, nuances and details of that uh, in a moment. Uh, next on my screen, anyways, Jess. Jess, uh, you've been on the show a couple of years ago. Uh, maybe you could reintroduce yourself and say a little bit about what you're doing now. Uh, yep. Um, so I'm a postdoc now in the Department of History at Sydney University, and I'm very proud to have been part of this um, project working on the tribunal and also the broader movement into researching what happened in 1965. So in my own research at the moment, um, the focus isn't only 1965, but looking at the relationship between the military and the Islamist militias between that period and today. So sort of looking at how this past is influencing Indonesian politics today. And we'll talk about your essay, which comes um, at least in part from your earlier work in, in, in a few minutes in the interview. Annie, maybe you could say a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Kelly, and thanks for um, having us on again. Um, yes, uh, so I'm at the University of Queensland and I'm a historian of Indonesia. And uh, I guess 1965 has always been a, a central part of my work and um, it was uh, a great honour to be asked to be involved in preparing evidence for the uh, 
um, the IPT, which is our International uh, People's Tribunal. And, I mean, we we worked over a couple of years and then we kept working um, on, uh, like, following up the recommendations and uh, on and this book. And uh, the whole thing, like Saskia said, is trying to come to some kind of reckoning with this past and to push for a more open acknowledgement of what happened in 1965 and, in particular, um, the the types of crimes that were committed which are not acknowledged and let alone any chance of redress at this stage. But, yeah. So, so maybe the place to start. I suspect some of our audience have not heard the label People's Tribunal before. Um, so maybe, Annie, you can start, but the rest of you can jump in. What, what is the history of People's Tribunals? What, what did, how does this work, and, and how have they been done before this? Well, uh, <laughs> or you can hand uh, off if you'd rather. I, I reckon this might be a Saskia question, actually. Go for it, Saskia. I, I think Saskia's written a bit about this. <laughs> well, uh, the, the, the most direct precursor of this particular tribunal is the tribunal on uh, the, the comfort women in Japan mm. that was held around the, uh, the, the 2000 something. Um, also because Nur Shabani Katya Sunkana was the uh, prosecutor for the Indonesian comfort women. But uh, there's the whole history of people's tribunals. So people's tribunals are actually tribunals in which the community uh, takes to task usually uh, a state party which otherwise would never uh, been taken to task because uh, in the country itself or the, le or the international legal system is not able to qualify to or willing to uh, uh, redress the particular issues that are at stake. Uh, there have been uh, pe people's tribunals on several issues uh, on se and in particular countries like Iran, Guatemala and other countries. Uh, there is um, uh, an official organization called People's Tribunals, which is located in, uh, in uh, Rome. Uh, but we decided to set up our own particular form, uh, best suited to this kind of uh, crime, um, with, um, I think, a, a very prominent uh, uh, group of, uh, of lawyers and legal specialists uh, who really are knowledgeable about the international aspects or the particular kind of aspects that uh, are relevant for, for this particular case. So we didn't work directly, but we were inspired by uh, the Rome uh, group of, uh, of, of tribunals. We were most directly inspired by, as I said before, by the Comfort Women's Tribunal. Mm -hmm. How do you, as someone who organizes one of these things, who organizes a people tribunal, how do you wrestle with the, the variety of, of concerns that, that, that come up? How do you decide who the appropriate judges are? How do you balance the need for um, visibility uh, of judges with expertise? How do, you, how, how do you go about selecting judges and, and creating the process? <laughs> Oh, that was a lengthy process. I can tell you that uh, Noor Shabani did most of that, uh, also mm -hmm. because she has a wide international network. But of course, we discussed it at length. 
Um, well, you start out with the most prominent people that you think uh, might be uh, relevant for us. So we even approached Carter, mm -hmm. uh, ex-president Carter, uh, because uh, he had been involved in, uh, in calling for the end of the mass incarcerations in Indonesia, but we never got an answer. And so then we also asked Desmond Tutu, right? So you start with these prominent figures, um, but we wanted to have uh, a wide range of specialties. So we had, uh, we were very lucky to have uh, Zach Jacob as uh, our chair. Zach Jacob is a prominent ANC uh, lawyer from South Africa, a former uh, friend, colleague of uh, Mandela, and uh, involved in the constitution and also in writing up the constitution and in dealing with the apartheid uh, situation. Uh, and, and we were so lucky that uh, he was uh, actually a member of the communist wing of the ANC, and he was uh, all the time wondering what had happened to this wonderful uh, communist organization in Indonesia, because they suddenly disappeared from the radar all over in South Africa. So when we approached him, he immediately uh, accepted. And so we had um, a human rights lawyer from Iran who had headed the uh, Iran tribunal on uh, a massacre in Iran. We had a representative from the Cambodia tribunal. There's, mm -hmm. It's a hybrid uh, uh, tribunal, a court actually, hybrid court of international uh, court in, in, in Cambodia, by the Cambodia massacre. We had somebody who had been involved with the Yugoslav uh, tribunal, Milosevic hmm. trials and all that. And, and so and we had a representative of the Rome group, Mirai Fanon. And so we had all these wonderful people who uh, uh, were sh just because of the sheer commitment, because we were not able to cover any more than just their very uh, basic transport and living uh, costs during the tribunal uh, to come to us and because they were concerned about uh, justice, right? And they just couldn't accept, can't accept the kind of cruelty and injustice that has been going on uh, in Indonesia uh, in the years after the 1st of October, 1965. And, uh, and so we are very proud of them, very happy with them and very grateful to them mm -hmm. for their expertise and for the enormous energy that they uh, spend on this uh, tribunal. And you talked about their travel expenses. That leads to the next question. What about the venue? Why, why choose? Um, how, how did you make that decision about where to host this? We had very little funds. Uh, mm. It was almost uh, impossible to to get funds. And even now, we cannot disclose the name of our major funder mm. uh, because uh, that major funder is uh, at the moment still active in Indonesia and is afraid of losing uh, mm -hmm. its affiliation. Um, <clears throat> but we did get some funds in the end. And then we thought, OK, how do we spend them? Um, we could, of course, have opted for... Uh, uh, a boring uh, seminar room at my university, the University of Amsterdam, but that just doesn't have the kind of prestige that we wanted uh, this tribunal to have. So in the end, uh, we, we calculated and calculated and calculated and discussed and negotiated, and we were able to find a prestigious uh, venue, the new church in The Hague, mm -hmm. which has been used for international conferences. And that proved the perfect venue. And we just managed to 
cover all our expenses from the very small fund uh, that uh, we managed to get. But I must stress that everybody worked in a voluntary fashion for us. And that was the only way in which we, we could do this. Uh, Indonesia is a powerful country and nobody wants to get on the wrong side of the, of the Indonesian authorities. Uh, uh, and that's also one reason why there is so little international pressure. And that was the major reason why um, international funders simply could not be known to fund us. So Jess and Annie, you both wrote contributions to this and presumably know most or all of the people who also did. I wonder, so, so a two-part question. I wonder, first of all, how, how you reached out to contributors and whether you found them eager to contribute or hesitant. But secondly, I wonder what it was as, as people trained in academia, what was the experience like of writing essays which were meant to be part of this kind of tribunal process? And I'll just let Annie start and Jess, you can pitch in. Sure, um, so uh, I, for the tribunal itself, um, I mainly contributed to uh, what turned into a kind of evidence brief. So uh, we had prosecutors who were from Indonesia who came um, to um, The Hague to do the actual tribunal. But, of course, the work leading up to that was many, many months in preparation. Um, and it was really security concerns, I think, which meant that any like there was just no possibility that this tribunal could have been held in Indonesia. It just, there's no way it could have happened. It just would have been too many security concerns to go through, to be honest. But anyway, uh, so in those months leading up to it, uh, mainly what I did was uh, condense what was the research up until that point on a particular issue or a set of crimes and so we tried to organise things by what had happened in different regions. So there were sort of documents prepared on what had happened in different regions, but then also by crime. So what the prosecutor was arguing in terms of, you know, did it meet, you know, the um, the um, the various rules of crime that you have to prove in order for something to have been um, perpetrated. So I prepared evidence mainly for the sexual-based crimes. And so that turned into a very large document where I condensed a lot of what had been oral testimonies mainly collected over the previous 15 years uh, since the end of the military regime by researchers like myself and Saskia and uh, a bunch of um, survivor organisations and human rights NGOs and looked at all the different materials that they'd collected and then condensed them down and categorised them by types of crime. And so as an historian, that was a, a new <laughs> way of writing and preparing materials. Uh, because I had to look at it uh, and learn what were the, um, the different elements of crimes for different types of sexual um, crimes. And so these were things from um, 
you know, rape and torture and various forms of um, other types of sexual and gender-based offences that we had to argue in this particular brief in terms of crimes against humanity. And so and there were lots of additional elements where uh, I spent a lot of time translating materials into English and trying to categorise things and try and summarise what were the main trends within this data. Uh, but uh, I think everyone really, a lot of the people who were working on this were historians and NGO people and so forth, and we were all really learning how to do it together because mm-hmm. there was a few people involved who were um, who were lawyers and we had some outside help from some really helpful people like this one lady who'd been helping with the Cambodian um, trials. She lent us a hand with how to uh, explain particular types of crimes and such. And so we did have help, but most of us were historians kind of learning as we went. Really? (laughs) If that's fair. (laughs) Yes. Do you want to add into that or not? No, I think that's an excellent summary of like um, what we did I think one point would be that the report and the book are quite separate and mm-hmm. different in the way that they approach things so um, the the report is us having our best shot at putting forward the evidence um, of these crimes and then the book is a reflection on that but also more generally how 1965 is remembered in um, Indonesia at that time so at the time of commemorating 50 years since the killing so one of the chapters in the book is about how um, 1965 is spoken about um, by the younger generation mm-hmm. of people who weren't alive in 1965 but who are using social media to talk about it and how I know I think it's interesting to look at the two things the book and the report together and how they I guess they complement each other. Yeah I was going to ask that um, and I was going to ask it later but maybe I'll ask it now so so if the IPT was a public-facing, a broad public-facing work. Do you think of this book as a as, as facing academics or facing? Uh, is this meant to reach academics or re- meant to reach a more popular audience? Or what were your hopes for the book? Well, we are happy to announce that it will be launched uh, next week in uh, in Indonesian. The Indonesian version will be launched. Uh, so what we definitely want to achieve uh, or the audience we want to reach is an educated public broader than academics uh, in Indonesia itself. It must n- not be allowed to be forgotten in Indonesia itself. Uh, I think we all managed, uh, editors and writers, uh, to not write in a too highly postmodern or whatever academic style so that uh, an educated public, uh, students also, younger students, um, activists, particularly activists, can, can read it. And it's already uh, in paperback version, fortunately. So we hope to reach uh, a, as wide an audience uh, as possible. So both the, um, the verdict, uh, the report of the judges, and the, this book, the anthology, are out in Indonesia now. Right? Well, next week is the launch for the tribunal book. We also hope 
Um, because the crimes, as uh, Annie already said, that were dealt with in the prosecution are based, of course, on the Rome Statute, mm -hmm. right? That is what uh, on what the ICC was uh, is built on the International Criminal Court. That's based on the Rome Statute. And so we followed the list of crimes listed there. Uh, and what we are now doing is preparing a comic book uh, on those Mm. And at this moment, we have listed 10 crimes um, uh, in which um, it's very clearly spelled out what is the legal background of that particular crime and what is the relevance for Indonesia and what happened in Indonesia after 65. So we do try to reach as many people, particularly within Indonesia. This comic book will be in Indonesian, mm. in the Indonesian language, uh, as, uh, as we can. Mm. I'd like to ask each of you about your own contributions and then get back to the, uh, the verdicts and the receptions um, uh, of the tribunal. I guess I'll start with Jess. Jess, you wrote specifically about the documentary evidence that about the ways in which Suharto and elements of the military made an intentional choice to conduct mass violence. So, so for people who haven't had a chance to read your work yet, how... I know this is not fair, but how would you quickly summarize that evidence? And, and what, what's the alternate, alternate narrative presented by the Indonesian government and military? And, and, and why was this question so important to the IPT? And I know that's three questions, but I'll just leave it at that and let you answer as you want. Well, I guess the, the rather unique thing about the, the 1965 killings in Indonesia is that up until very recently, um, we've had the, the Indonesian state's propaganda version of what happened, i.e. that the killings are the result of popular uprisings um, by just civilians who decided they hated their communist neighbours and decided to, to just murder them. Um, and this is, of course, uh, um, a narrative that was, as we see in the book, I mean, the chapter by Adam, Adam Hughes Henry, um, a deliberate, like, narrative that was propagated in the West as well. Um, and then we have the, the voices of survivors of this period and eyewitnesses who are able to, to talk about what they lived through and what they experienced. But it's been close to impossible to find um, the Indonesian military's own documentation of these events. And in fact, it was not even known if they had done that. And that was one of the big questions that scholars had, like, was it centrally coordinated were orders sent out. And I was just lucky in that I was able to gain access to um, some of these documents. The, the first collection that had been found produced by the military at the time of the genocide, and it shows how they um, implemented it and how it was very clearly um, centrally coordinated. And we can now track um, the chain of command behind the violence using the military's own documents. So, yeah. And so why is that so important to a people's tribunal? Because we're trying to establish what happened, right? And um, if we can now say um, on the 1st of October 1965, the military declared martial law throughout Sumatra and um, declared that they were initiating an annihilation campaign, it's very different to this idea that people just were like, spontaneously decided to... Um, to conduct the killings. And so the, the way that the public 
understands what happened um, is radically changed by, I think, the discovery of these documents and the way that the tribunal has also put together the other forms of evidence um, into an evidence brief. So we um, are no longer talking about, you know, um, as if it's some great mystery as to what actually happened. And now we can start talking about facts and, you know, outlining specifically the crimes that were committed. And for listeners new to the program, uh, Jess has talked about this at greater length in an interview she was um, generous to give a couple years ago based on her book. Um, so I wonder, I guess my follow-up to that, Jess, is, is you, you managed to find this treasure trove of documents. What is your sense about whether there are other treasure troves out there and whether they continue to survive? Is this kind of detailed analysis you did in your book, is that gonna be possible for other regions or, or to tie regions together? Um, what, what's your sense about what we will get to know about this? So the question of whether or not this type of documentation exists in other um, provinces is yes, absolutely. And there are traces of that in the documents that were found in Arche that shows that. Um, and there's, you can look at the, the national chains of command and different military structures that were used to be able to put forward that, um, that bigger picture. Um, but the question is, yes, um, will we be able to access these? And um, I have heard from um, sources within the Indonesian government that they're being actively destroyed now because there is people looking for them. But at the same time, um, there are new troves that have been discovered. So Grace Lexana has just published an article in the Journal of Genocide Research talking about some documents that were found in Java. Mm. So they are there. Um, there is a, an element of luck as to where we'll find them. But I do think um, that, you know, if there was a systematic attempt to... Um, find these government documents um, that we probably find a lot more. Because Indonesia is a strange country. There's, um, you know, the authoritarian great big state, but at the same time it's a massive country mm -hmm. um, where different areas, you know, have different levels of security and sometimes it depends on who you know and, like, where you go and if you're lucky enough to come across them. But, yeah, they're definitely there and we are finding them. Annie, your chapter is about sexual violence. Um, and in particular, you talk about the way in which legal, and, and, and I've got this word in quotes in my notes because I wrote these notes at 11 o'clock last night, but cultural is the word I'll use, understandings of sexual violence and how they fit as a crime or something else. How those understandings have changed in the 50 years since the violence in Indonesia. So, so can you talk about the way changing understandings of sexual violence uh, impacted the tribunal, but also have impacted scholarship on, on the subject in Indonesia? Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, I guess I, as an historian, the way that we write about the history of particular crimes, there's a couple of ways we can do this. But if you're a legal person, and I certainly don't make claims to be a legal scholar, not by any means, but uh, working on the tribunal uh, forced me to confront a number of tensions 
with the entire endeavour that we were trying to do. So we were trying to take the Indonesian state to hold some kind of, well, basically a purely symbolic gesture for justice for the Indonesian state, right, Um, to be responsible for what they did. In 2015, 50 years exactly, we tried to time it 50 years after the beginning of these events, um, since they occurred. Now, these, uh, like as Saskia mentioned, we use the uh, Rome Statute as our guide, if you will, uh, to look at these crimes and to make the prosecutions. But the Rome Statute didn't come into force until decades after these events occurred. And so, I mean, this is something that people in the Cambodian tribunal have had to wrestle with because they've had to say, was it a crime at the time? And could you make a, a prosecution based on the laws as they were at the time of the offence, right? And so for a people's tribunal already uh, making a case against the state rather than individuals and making a retrospective application of modern laws to address historical cases, we were already moving into some pretty interesting areas. But that never should stand in the way. And But the sexual violence stuff in particular shows how there have been leaps and bounds made in particular areas of international jurisprudence and gender jurisprudence is one of them. And since the 1990s, of course, this is where there has been a flourishing of attention, not enough, I might add, but certainly a lot more attention paid to how these kinds of international crimes are deeply gendered and sexualized in their effects and in their implementation. And so the 1965 case shows this just as clearly. So um, if we had, like, had a similar setup in 1966 and tried it then, the laws that would have been available to us to do that trial would have been very different because there would have been nothing adequate to describe or prosecute the types of crimes that were committed in 1965 against mostly women and girls but against men and boys as well. Um, but we were using the um, Rome Statute and so I had a wide variety of crimes to use and to apply and even they weren't sufficient to adequately describe what had been the myriad types of abuses that mostly women and girls had experienced during this period. And so for the tribunal book in particular, even though in the trial around sexual offences, like we demarcated mainly as crimes against humanity, uh, rape and torture, sexualised torture as a form of um, crime against humanity, and a whole list of things that we put under kind of other sexual offences, which included things like sexualised forms of mutilation and assault and all other groups of crimes. Uh, But there were these three really interconnected ones, which were sexual slavery, enforced prostitution and forced marriage. And for those people who work in this area, these are interconnected 
difficult issues and particularly around forced marriage has been an area of, of a lot of uh, challenge and um, just in the last 10 years there's been a lot of advances in other tribunals and hybrid courts around the world uh, and the Indonesian case shows just how interconnected but separate these crimes are and it does a disservice to group all sexual crimes together under an umbrella term of rape because it doesn't adequately understand or redress them. And so these were some of the things that we encountered uh, while preparing the evidence for the tribunal. So I'm curious, and and this was sparked by by your reference, but I've, I've interviewed, I don't know, seven or eight people who've written or written about Indonesia at this point. And I've heard the consistent shorthand of 1965. And I'm wondering, how did that become this the shorthand to use to apply to the violence that begins in 65 and continues? What, 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 what is hidden and what is revealed by using that as shorthand? Jess? Yeah, Jess, go on. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? Like now people are using 1965-66 Indonesian genocide, but that wasn't a thing before. And even like what do we use to describe what happened? There's It was often called, um, you know, the Indonesian killings mm-hmm. um, or in Indonesia itself, um, like the tragedy or something more, you know, not quite as specific. So 1965 locates are very clearly in this event, which... You know, there's a very clear before and after in Indonesian modern history. Um, and, yeah, it gives the space for people to then interpret it, I guess, because the, um, the official version very clearly ties it to the, the alleged culpability of the Indonesian Communist Party. Mm-hmm. So the, the movement, the alleged you know, um, coup movement that was used as the pretext for starting the, the military's own killing mm-hmm. campaign. Yeah. Yeah, I've watched the the Rwandan government try and create an accepted label for what happens in Rwanda, right? The Rwandan genocide against the Tutsi, which has um, uh, which which both hides and and reveals a lot. And I'm intrigued by this kind of shorthand, uh, and and I'm particularly intrigued by the way in which public actors, whether or not. Uh, uh, NGOs or researchers or something are interacting with governments and there are competing labels that, that emerge for what happens. Um, and this, I, I'll, I'll pause that discussion for a moment because I want to come back to that Saskia and, and talk about what charges were you decided to use and which charges you decided to omit and how that hap- that the discussion about the phrase, the label of genocide played into that. But, but first Saskia, you, your chapter addresses the issue of memorialization, uh, particularly mass graves. And I thought I'd ask you to start with this chapter. I wonder if you'd be willing to describe one of the trips you took to visit a mass grave. You have three in your chapter. Um, are you willing to describe one of those for us? Well, I mean, the mass grave I'm most familiar with myself is the mass grave uh, close to our house in East Java, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a mass grave which contains uh, probably uh, around uh, 800 
people. Mm-hmm. It is a mass grave that is located in uh, the Kabon Raya, the botanical gardens in mm-hmm. East Java. Um, and uh, it contains both local activists, um, but also local activists of, of all kinds of progressive organizations, Kurwani, uh, the women's movement, the youth movement, uh, teachers, workers, plantation workers, all of that. Um, many of the local cadres of uh, the Communist Party and many of its associate organizations are murdered there. Um, and uh, uh, particularly, uh, like also just described, I mean, these were murders that were orchestrated by the military. Um, what we know at the moment from an eyewitness, a friend of ours, is that uh, the military took these prisoners out of their many, many, many prisons in the surroundings um, and then transported them to the botanical gardens uh, where they were actually murdered by local militias, murderous militias, with, uh, with machetes uh, and all that. Um, and they were dumped in a hole that had already been uh, dug to, um, to make into a fish pond. So the fish pond was never made. Instead, it was filled up with corpses. So I always think of, the, of that song by Billie Holiday, strange fruit hanging on a poplar tree. Mm. I always think a strange fish swimming in the fish pond, right? So <laughs> that's my association, clearly. Um, but it's not only cadres, right? I mean, there were also many people murdered there um, because of personal revenges. Like, I mean, there was a local football trainer who um, who who worked with progressive youth of all kinds, not particularly organized youth. Uh, and they again and again uh, beat the uh, in, uh, in football matches, uh, the local youth of Ansar, the, 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 the um, Muslim organization, youth organization. And the Ansar leader was one of the major murderers. And he rounded up the whole football team ever, ever, um, Playing against him, and they and, and murdered them and put them in the in in the gardens, right? So there is also all these personal revenges going on, and I think that is um, that is uh, uh, well symptomatic of what has been going on. The, the whole um, the general picture, of course, is the army rounding up uh, uh, and destroying the uh, the Communist Party. Uh, partly because the Communist Party was the largest supporter of the very popular president, President Sukarno. Uh, but in the wake of that campaign, a lot of personal uh, scores were also settled. And so you get this mixture. We are now engaged in a very uh, low-key uh, research on, um, on interviewing the surviving perpetrators. Uh, and how how did they become uh, involved in that? Right? What motivated them to take part uh, in a in a massacre uh, like this? Uh, and and those stories are gruesome, uh, revealing, um, and and they're hardly ever told. There are too few stories told. Um, 
all through this research, I've also been reading so much about the Holocaust, right? The Holocaust is, is of course, the, the, the major genocide that we've had in the past century and a half. Um, but it's amazing how much material there is. Stories of survivors, stories about particularly mm -hmm. sometimes of or by children of perpetrators. And so you get somehow a picture of what motivates people, of what happened. In Indonesia, uh, to the contrary, this happened much more sudden. I mean, the Holocaust has had a long history, right? From the beginning of the 30s before. Uh, so people saw it coming, at least uh, the most astute ones saw it coming in a certain way. And many of them also fled, right? Uh, in Indonesia, it was so sudden. The Communist Party was very popular. I mean, there were a lot of tensions uh, between the Communist Party and the army, and between the Communist Party and Muslim groups and things and so on. But the Communist Party was very, very popular party. It was the most modern party. It contained the most culturally um, suave and educated leaders and peoples. They were teachers. They were leaders of the farmers union. They were leaders of the trade unions. They were bringing Indonesia into uh, the modern future, right? And that is, of course, also what their president uh, uh, was telling them, we need to have a modern Indonesia, a socialist Indonesia, a progressive Indonesia. And, and they were doing that. And they were highly, uh, highly uh, kind of supported by that and, and praised for that. I mean, they all of them, if they were leaders, had all kinds of uh, announcements in their gardens, right? I'm a leader of this, I'm a leader of this branch, I'm a leader of that branch. They were proud of their achievements, and they could be proud of their achievements. So that is different from the Holocaust also, where the Jews were already uh, um, very much persecuted even before uh, the Holocaust itself started. Um, but still, I mean, a comparison is very interesting, but for me, to trying to to, to bring to light uh, the big picture and the trauma of, of what happened and to understand also the Indonesian genocide, uh, I, will, I don't think I will ever fully understand it. So I'm, I'm just working towards it and trying to, and, and I, mean, I think this book helped us, uh, the group of researchers that we collected, 40 of them helped us enormously um, with Nur Shabani, um, uh, we co-authored the book on propaganda because we felt that that was a much neglected uh, topic, even in our own uh, in, in our own tribunal. Although we had um, one uh, count on that uh, incitement to uh, to hatred uh, propaganda, but to understand the depth of the propaganda and the way the propaganda still functions to. Um, to, to stigmatize uh, the survivors, their families, uh, and so on. Indonesia has succeeded. I think it's one of the, I, don't, I can't mention any other example, to portray the victims as, uh, as culprits. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had it coming. It was due to them. Uh, they murdered our generals. Uh, Jess already uh, alluded mm -hmm. to that. Huh? The, 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 pro the, the army propaganda was that there were some generals murdered by the Communist Party and slaughtered and mutilated. That was what Annie and I also worked mm -hmm. on, the sexual aspects of that, which is a total lie. It's a nonsense. The uh, Communist Party was, uh, some leaders were involved, but they never had any kind of 
kind of uh, intention of m murdering generals in general. It was not in their interest to murder the generals even, right? Um, but still that is being felt even, even people who you otherwise would respect highly, right? I mean, um, I, can, I can quote some people who I highly respect as uh, uh, women scholars, feminist studies scholars, who somehow all of a sudden say, oh, but the army had the right to do what they did. They had the right to kill. I say, what? There is no right to kill for an army, right? Unarmed citizens. This is extrajudicial killings. This is a genocide. And so that is also why it's so important to bring the legal aspects uh, to light, as we did mm -hmm. uh, in the tribunal and, uh, and in, our, in our anthology also. Um, because it's, it's still a whole, a whole way of, of trying to cover up what has happened. I mean, these communists were bad people anyway. I mean, it's good we got rid of them and they should never come back, you know. That is still a very general feeling. Um, and instead of coming to terms with the horrible crimes that have been going on, uh, the general public looks away from it. And if, if, they, if this continues, of course, they will never come, for instance, ad hoc court, which we still hope will uh, mm. at least address some of the issues or some other way mm. of retribution or compensation or uh, end to impunity. And, and don't forget, I mean, this kind of impunity for the uh, 1965 uh, past October uh, 65 mass killings leads to the kind of impunity with which the army at this moment mm -hmm. kills innocent citizens in Papua, right? The army is used to the impunity it has uh, enjoyed for so long. It, it knows it will never uh, be tried and, and come to, uh, to, to account for its crimes. So it continues killing. And therefore also there's a, a, a recent case in which some um, members of, uh, of, um, of, uh, of an Islamist militia were killed, just like mm. that, just killed, I mean, in a kind of roundup or whatever. I mean, um, and human rights activists very rightly say, yes, they were a nuisance, these, uh, these kinds of uh, activists, uh, these militia members, but you cannot just go and kill them. We want a state which is governed by the rule of law. Uh, and that is what we also argue for. There has been a state in which people are uh, bring, being brought to court if they commit a crime. And, and that is still not accepted human uh, common opinion and definitely not by the army and by those in power. And so therefore uh, our book not only has relevance uh, to the past, to past crimes, but also to the present. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also one of the issues that we address uh, in our anthology. Yeah, I was going to ask, so, so that's a nice lead-in to that next question, which is, how did you, how did you attempt to, I don't know, publicize is maybe not exactly the right word, but how did you attempt to make the IPT something that would get attention across the world? Um, how were the findings publicized? How were they, how did you try and make Indonesians aware of this? What was the strategy to make this visible on the on a, on a global scale, 
Well, we had a media team uh, and uh, they uh, put uh, the, the sessions themselves were uh, live streamed and mm -hmm. they're still available on mm -hmm. YouTube. So that's there. We made several films. The media team also made several films, mm -hmm. uh, which are also available uh, on YouTube. So we worked on social media, on Facebook. We still have uh, some Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups and other kinds of, uh, of groups. Uh, and so that's what we try to do. We also invited, of course, uh, the press, in the, the Indonesian press and the international press. Um, the, as far as the international press is concerned, we were uh, rather disappointed, actually. There was not that much attention, a little bit, but okay. The Indonesian press was very much interested. We had a number of journalists coming all over from uh, from Jakarta and all over, um, and who covered uh, the, uh, the the sessions extensively in the Indonesian press. Um, and um, so there was uh, actually quite a lot of attention to it in Indonesia itself at that time, and through our present activities, uh, we try to keep up that, uh, well, the momentum is, of course, over now, but we try to keep up the campaign. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. We have no funds, right? Still no funds. Mm -hmm. So everybody, again, is doing all these kinds of things in their, uh, in their private time. Uh, but we will continue, and we hope the younger generations will take over. Uh, as Jess already said, there's a young group now. Um, working on these issues. There's also a group uh, of young scholars on 1965 mm -hmm. in Indonesia um, who are very active and who, who are uh, also uh, supported and guided by one of our authors. Uh, and, and so I think it cannot go away. Once mm -hmm. uh, the tribunal will not be forgotten. I think in every major publication now on Indonesia, which deals with 65, uh, the tribunal is there. They cannot ignore our findings. They cannot ignore uh, the final report of our judges. So, so that is, I think, that is one important uh, achievement of the tribunal. But uh, to see justice done, which of course we hope for at some stage, that is still a long way off. So, and I'll ask Jess to start this and then the rest of you can uh, pitch in, but this, this, from a scholar's perspective, this is a wonderful chance to get a broad survey of what we now know about events in Indonesia. So I wonder, as you as you edited this volume and as you read the uh, submissions to the IPT, um, what what surprised you about what we now know? Whether that's what we know or what we don't know, what what kind of new consensus emerged? What as a, as, as an academic, how? What did you learn from this project? Any? Well, I think, yes, doing the evidence preparation for the tribunal was um, as a offshoot, it was a, it was a way to do a survey of what we know up to that point. And so in and of itself as an academic endeavor, it was very useful. Um, but what it really showed us is that there are so many more things that we don't know yet and we need so much more evidence. And the main problem that we're facing now, apart from, you know, the impenetrable wall of impunity uh, and, you know, the resistance by the Indonesian state and all those things, is time. Because every one of the people who were eyewitnesses to 
actors in victims, perpetrators, bystanders and all the rest of it, they are rapidly passing away. And we really only have a few years left now to collect whatever personal recollections there are and otherwise in another few years that task will be impossible. And, I mean, already the narrative in Indonesia is is that these killings, yeah, some killings happened, but, you know, they were justified and there weren't that many really and there's this odd sort of oscillation between the glorification of the military's might and saving of the nation Mm -hmm. versus, um, oh, there's not really that many mass graves. I don't know what people are talking about, you know. It's, it's fine. Um, and it's a narrative of these killings didn't really happen, right, and the denial narrative is very strong and, to be honest, only grows stronger as the years pass. And so with time running out to collect whatever testimonies we can now, in another 10 years, this work will be impossible you know, and it will be as if these killings never happened. Uh, And so we're right now fighting against time and COVID uh, to collect as many testimonies and, like, a lot of it comes from survivors because they're the ones who are more willing to speak. Perpetrators have been overwhelmingly unwilling to speak and most researchers, apart from a few key examples, have not been able to get good or useful data from perpetrators. Um, so, yeah, so right now we're fighting against time. That's a pessimistic, I'm tempted to say grim, response. Um, but it's one that makes sense. Um, and yet, on the one hand, as somebody who primarily deals with Rwanda and the Holocaust in my teaching, I've actually been surprised at the number of monographs that have emerged from non-Indonesian researchers um, over the past half decade, decade that address Indonesia. I've been impressed with that. Um, And so I wonder, is that simply a moment, uh, a a coincidence that these have occurred or does that represent some kind of progress? And and what I don't know, of course, is is what Indonesian researchers are doing since I don't read the languages. how is it, how would you assess this kind of appearance of a number of monographs in the last few few years? Well, when I started my work in the early '80s, there was hardly any work being done on 65. First of all, to work in Indonesia on the topic uh, had to be done underground. It was very mm-hmm. dangerous. I mean, people disappeared. Um, but also because of the, uh, how do you call it, collusion, I would say, of uh, university authorities outside of Indonesia, right? I mean, I faced a lot of problems. Not In Indonesia, it was dangerous, simply dangerous. I was afraid physically for my safety. But in Holland, I met all kinds of obstacles. Mm. Uh, There was the refusal to to publish my first article, for instance, right? People didn't want to be associated with me. I was shunned. 
I couldn't get any research funding. I mean, I didn't even get funding for the IPT, but I primarily didn't get any research funding for my work in Indonesia. Um, because the universities were afraid that they would lose their precious uh, research visa by being associated with me. Mm -hmm. um, I was blacklisted from Indonesia for a long time until uh, the what we call the democratic opening in 1998. So after 1998, it became uh, more easy to do this kind of work. And all of a sudden, also the authorities, uh, the university authorities became more welcoming to researchers to work on this. Right. Surprise, surprise. Um, and so a lot of lot more studies could be done openly and uh, a good work was, was coming forward. And fortunately, we now have a number of international scholars who, who have uh, produced wonderful work. Uh, I just mentioned, well, of course, well, we have J uh, Jess and Annie here. That's lovely. Great work. Uh, innovative, beautiful. Um, uh, Robinson, great work. Uh, John Rosa, great work. There's also the two films, of course, which have mm. uh, uh, achieved a lot of attention from uh, uh, no. a senior moment. <laughs> Special <laughs> uh, Oppenheimer. The yes. act of killing, the act of killing and uh, silence. Yeah, yeah. so Joshua Oppenheimer, so that also stimulated work. Now, in Indonesia itself at the moment, as I said, there is this group of young scholars um, but it's really not um, a recommendation if you work on 1965 and if you still want to have an academic career. So um, I'm, I'm very proud to know quite a few uh, Indonesians who are brave enough to work on this topic. It is um, so bad in Indonesia, I would say, still at the moment after the, uh, after the democratic opening, that the whole... Um, topic of history, being a history teacher, is something that is kind of met with a lot of uh, mm. disregard, right? I mean, you're, you're not a prestigious person if you're a history teacher. Uh, what is there to teach about history? Everybody knows it. I mean, there is a, a textbook. The good textbooks were burned, by the way, in 2004. Mm. Uh, and nobody dares to touch uh, uh, the uh, still not the government version. So to be um, history teacher is some is something of little prestige and the history departments are understaffed underfunded uh, and don't get any kind of uh, high standing in, in university circles um, so in that atmosphere it's understandable if the if there are only very few scholars in Indonesia itself I just mentioned Pa Asfi Warman who is wonderful and who has kept up this kind of studies for the last 20 years um, and who received a lot of uh, flag and difficulties, um, but he, he did it. And there are a few others, of course, uh, Ponitriana, uh, um, some others. And of course, the contributors to, to our chapters are also doing that kind of work. You still have to be a very courageous person and not out for personal gain or a high career if you want to work uh, on this topic. And that, I think, is a great shame. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been very generous with your time, uh, and for our listeners, we are we're doing this interview on Zoom, and because of the time difference, and I, I've in my little square on the Zoom window, my office has become brighter and brighter and brighter as the interview has gone on. I'm looking at Jess's room, and it has stayed dark and grim the entire time. So, so I want to say thank you to all of you for your time, uh, especially at this inconvenient time. 
Um, I, I have one more question to ask, and it's all, this, the one I use to end all my interviews, and, and that is um, to ask you to suggest a book or a movie or something something that was meaningful to you as, as you've been doing this research, something that the, you think the audience would benefit from reading or watching. Um, I have one more weekend left before my semester starts at Newman, and I have some uh, faint hope in the back of my head that my syllabi will be written before the weekend starts. I know that's unrealistic, but I'll hope that anyway. What should I read or watch this weekend? Uh, and Saskia, I'll start with you and then I'll move on. Well, I think the two films by Joshua Oppenheimer, mm. if you haven't yet uh, watched mm -hmm. them, eh? the, uh, the Act of Killing and the Look of Silence, they are really amazing. Uh, and they will introduce you into the topic in a, in a marvelous way. I myself, uh, when I for the first time watched uh, uh, The Act of Killing, actually, we started the tribunal after watching uh, the, the premiere, the launch of The Act of Killing in Holland, Joshua Oppenheimer and some exiles and mm -hmm. some human rights activists in Indonesia came to my house and then we, decided, we, we talked about what shall we do? How can we keep this alive? Uh, and then we decided, okay, we have a tribunal. But the act of killing is amazing. Please watch. Jess, what would your suggestion be? The book that I'm finding really fascinating at the moment is Michelle Caswell's book, um, Archiving the Unspeakable. And she's got a collection of photos from the Tulslang prison huh. and looking at the way that they're used as, like, as evidence in understanding what happened in the Cambodian case. I would, I'd highly recommend that as an interesting read. Interesting. And Annie? Um, I guess the book that uh, I think for before Joshua Oppenheimer's films, uh, the book that people in the Anglosphere sort of knew um, came uh, was written by uh, a woman called Carmel Budiarjo, who it's her own account. It's called Surviving Indonesia's Gulag. And she wrote it some years after she was freed and returned to the UK. She was a UK resident who married an Indonesian man and uh, they were both imprisoned and he was in prison for much longer and she was in prison for a few years. And, and it's her account of her time in Indonesia and her time as a political prisoner in Indonesia before she managed to go back to the UK. Um, and... For people in the Anglosphere especially, I think that book was the first introduction to what had happened in Indonesia. And it's, you know, it's, it's quite an old book now, but um, it's still available. And, yeah, so Carmel Budiarjo's Surviving Indonesia's Gulag would be my recommendation. I've been talking with Saskia Viringa, Annie Pullman, and Jess Melvin about their edited volume, The International People's Tribunal for 1965, and the uh, and the title escapes me now. I wish I could say it was a senior moment, but I will prefer that it's not. Um, and to the audience, it's a new year. And I got to spend Christmas break lining up new interviews for the show. So look forward in the coming months to uh, interviews about uh, environmental warfare and about mass violence in the Middle East, uh, about Jews returning to Vienna um, in the aftermath of the Holocaust about, I hope, uh, if Saskia is still willing, about propaganda and, and, and the violence in Indonesia and several others. So uh, I look forward to those interviews and come back. Uh, and in the meantime, 
uh, Saskia, Annie, and Jess, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I hope that uh, as your research continues, you'll be willing to come back on the show and keep us up to date sometime in the future. Thanks for having us on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. That was a great pleasure.